Hairbring Comedy Presents! Over the past two decades, I have worked with artists of varying genres. Music, comedy, theater, dance, and more. It has been my observation that while each has its own systems and specificities, they are all relative. Art itself is relative to the observer. As the audience, our appreciation is influenced by our individual perspectives. For artists themselves, motivations and measures of success are just as conditional. In this series, I will be speaking with working class entertainers and artists. We will highlight the unique aspects of their crafts while, hopefully, proving my theory that it is all pretty much the same at their roots. My name is Isaac Landford, and this is The Art of Relativity. I am sitting here with the One Woman Festival, Lollapalooza. Did I get that right? I pulled it out. Yep, you got it right. Yeah, right on. Uh, how are you doing this evening? I am glamorous and lightly tucked, so I'm all good. <laughs> all right on. So you, I, I get ready to say uh, like the label for everybody, and then I always end up doubling back on myself and being like, oh, maybe like we shouldn't be so adherent to labels. But you're you're a drag performer. I am. Yep, I'm a drag queen who's heterosexually challenged. <laughs> are have you? Are there straight drag queens? There are. They're definitely not as common, but there are straight men who just like the performance aspect of it. There are also straight men who are uh, who are just cross dressers and drag is a safe avenue to do that in. So, yeah, we cover the spectrum. OK, because I was my follow up question was going to be like, are they really straight? <laughs> yeah, they're really straight. We even have straight women. We have. Yeah, uh, there's uh, everybody from. Uh, straight to gay, male to female, the whole spectrum, uh, cisgender, transgender, every everybody represents at some level in drag. Has it always been that way? Ye yes, uh, it started uh, drag kind of started down two paths um, when uh, when we saw the burlesque start in the in the U.S., um, there was always that kind of drag entertainer. It was more for comedy's sake rather than then this female illusionist. And then in the 1940s in the Harlem Renaissance, we saw drag really evolve among uh, uh, predominantly um, trans, uh, trans women of color and, and, and queer people of color in uh, the ball scene. So yeah, it's, it's pretty much been uh, an, even, uh, an even spread of people from its inception. Nice, There's a, I read about a guy I wish I, I had my books packed up right now. I think his name was, he went by like Iberling or something like that. But he was this dude who during vaudeville did a drag act. Like he, he was, she was a songbird and just the last name was the name they used. Like it was his real last name, but that's what he used for his stage name. But what I read about him is he was like the first person to do it like earnestly that it wasn't for comedy, that he just got all glammed up and did this but then he also would stage these photo shoots of himself doing really manly acts uh, to where no one would think that he was a fairy <laughs> well and it's i I'm, I'm not familiar with that specific person but i do know as early as vaudeville i mean there's that whole uh, mythos around drag came from shakespeare read writing the scripts drag meaning dressed as girl 
oh. um, which which has largely been is largely accepted as not true. OK, but but that's kind of the mythos around it. So it's it is definitely very old. And you have uh, amazing characters that have come out of the drag world. My favorite is Mae West based her entire character off of a burlesque drag queen. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the entire persona of Mae West was based off of a drag queen. I mean, that makes sense, though. Oh, it, yeah. Like, absolutely. that is a... <laughs> uh, I remember the first time, because actually, really, until I met you and I asked a bunch of questions, I didn't know a goddamn thing about drag. But when I first saw a woman doing drag, like, as in not, like, gender swap, not, like, being a drag king, right. it, that blew my mind. I didn't understand how that was That's a thing. That's more... Yeah, that's kind of down the road of like hyper feminism to where it's it is a cisgendered woman um, portraying a drag queen. So it's not just about playing the opposite gender. It's about just taking their gender and turning up the volume a thousand percent. Yeah, because I also wasn't introduced to uh, I don't know what the term would be, but like now I, my terms are getting better, though. So like the traditional drag queen, that's like pageant, right? Um, pageants kind of been is now like the go-to term for it. Okay. Um, I just call them showgirls. Showgirls. It's, it's kind of that, and it is, and that one is really kind of 50-50 mix between trans women and cisgendered men doing drag. Um, and because that's kind of always been a pretty even mix. But it's that that pageantry was how where we cut our teeth uh yeah. in drag. And there was always it was the showgirls are the ones you saw at every show. And then you saw a lot of deviations coming off of that. That's where you got your like your freak drag, your goth drag, your camp drag, your um, your the the femme queens. The I just I mean, there's probably as many forms of drag now that are recognized as there are letters in the LGBTQQIP2SAA alphabet. <laughs> yeah, it, it's inter I always would talk about with comedy, for instance, I would say saying that you're a comedian is like saying I'm a musician. Oh, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't qualify whether you, what instrument you play or the style you play. That's a very large umbrella. And so oh, yeah. it makes sense for drag or anything else to be the same thing. And it's kind of nice, too, because within drag, you know, every most people are that are familiar with drag are familiar with the standard lip sync performance. Yeah. Where you're mouthing somebody else's words while maybe doing a dance or making a scene out of it. And, but I mean, there are drag queens who are uh, famous for stand-up comedy, who are famous for being musicians. Um, uh, Kachita Wurst is a phenomenal singer. Uh, in the comedy world, you have acts like Dame Edna, straight man. Yep. Um, uh, and uh, Flip Wilson even had a drag character, which some people say that there's a, it's a bit of a touchy subject, but he had his character, Geraldine, Geraldine mm -hmm. Jones. The devil yeah. made me do it. But yeah, so there's, there's a it's so you're right so within comedy there's a spectrum within within music there's a spectrum within drag it's kind of nice because there's not just a spectrum but there's a spectrum of spectrums yeah so it makes it really hard when people go you're a drag queen what do you do uh, um let's see how do i break this down <laughs> yeah is i'm sure if somebody like if you're a suburban house mom and you've been watching rupaul's drag race 
and you decide that you want to go out and watch a drag show and you don't do any kind of research and you end up at one of these, like you used the term goth. Uh, there are some drag queens that I refer to as nightmare monsters where it's oh, yeah. like, they look like they're eight feet tall and the makeup is like, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's really surreal and it's freaky. And it's like, if you wandered into that thinking that you were getting, someone in a ball gown like oh holy yeah shit. Like, i'm expecting <laughs> these just beautiful beautiful womenish figures and these gowns and this gorgeous hair and then a divine like character comes out and you're like what <laughs> <Yeah>. the hell <laughs> yeah so, but it's kind of nice though because some of what we're drag is at its best for me is where it's a surprise uh, where yeah. somebody comes on stage and they give you something that you were not expecting yeah and, so that's that's always my favorite. So I like it when people have those moments because usually I would say eight times out of 10, I won't say nine, but eight times out of 10, the surprise is exciting for them. Also, on any kind of show or lineup, let's differentiate our, our performers and have some different flavors going on because watching oh, yeah. the same thing over and over, like you're saying, if all I'm watching is lip syncing over and over and then someone comes out and sings, holy shit. Oh, it's that surprise factor. Yeah. Or just comes out and does and talks just actually is on a microphone speaking directly to the audience. Yeah. It, it really, and it makes them a novelty. It's like, so if, yeah, a lot of times it will be the, the one performer on the entire lineup. Oh, yeah. And it's not just and maybe they're lip syncing, but they're a serious dancer. Like you're seeing backflips yeah. and acrobatics in the show. Yeah. And there's it's anybody who can who can like find that line of where nobody's crossed yet and cross it. They're always going to be a favorite. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about you specifically. I want to know. I'm assuming you were looking at or had started doing some sort of performing before drag was ever exposed to you or introduced. Oh, oh absolutely. And uh, probably the earliest example I can remember is in preschool. I was I would corral all the kids together and against their will, force them to do sketches and, and things like that. Yeah. And make a new, if the kids weren't involved, they had to sit and watch. And luckily, <laughs> I had teachers who who uh, would help me enforce these uh, tyrant policies of performance. <laughs> and then, I mean, all through growing up, I, and again, in preschool, I had, I, I was taking violin lessons and then in, which I never took after that. So I, I will, I haven't touched a violin in 30 years. Um, but it's, then it was dance classes, then it was voice lessons and it was show choir. And I mean, there was always a performance aspect to my life. Yeah, so when when was drag presented to you? Do you remember your first experience? I do, I do. I was working in, I was a student at, at uh, Purdue University of Fort Wayne studying theater, doing a community theater show at uh, Fort Wayne Civic. And I was, I knew I was about to, to move away. I was, I was gonna try to make it as a lounge singer in Las Vegas. And uh, one of my friends who, who had, is in the process of becoming my drag mother, which that's a whole nother topic. She said, Oh, you're moving to Vegas. You want to make some extra money? I've never turned down extra money. <laughs> uh, there, there are very few things that I'm like, I would do anything for money, but I won't do that. Um, and I was like, you're sure. What, what have you gotten? There was this amateur drag show at this bar called up the street. And everything I did was musical theater. Cause that was the world I lived in. 
And I went out and I had just, I mean, it was, it was a horrible drag. She had painted my face. Her name was Delalicious. She painted my face. Um, I put these, I crafted some kind of outfits together and went out and just had a blast with it. Yeah. I will say first time drag, uh, it's always uncomfortable watching anybody when they're doing something for the first time. Oh yeah. And, but in drag, thankfully probably you had somebody else do your makeup. Yeah. But what about the heels? Luckily I was, <laughs> I was in a perform. The last show I did in community theater was a performance of Rocky horror show. Oh, okay. So <laughs> luckily I'd actually had a whole rehearsal process with some truly heinous, I mean, hate it that like they should be classified as SM heels. <laughs> and then when I did the show, I went to, I think it was like Payless or something. And they they had some size 13 little kitten heels that were like three inches tall. And man, you'd think I was a professional dancer with those safe little heels. <laughs> but I have seen some first timers who are convinced, like, oh no, I'm gonna master this 10 foot stiletto and just out there looking like a baby giraffe taking their first steps. When this idea of doing the drag night was presented to you, were you on board immediately or was, was it weird to you at all? Was that something that you'd ever thought about? Like, or did you feel comfortable embracing that femininity? I think because I was a spunky show kid, mm -hmm. um, you know, I had like done show choir and musical theater. There weren't a lot of like, Ooh, that sounds dangerous. Um, and also like, I knew that the, the, I knew Della and I trusted her. And I knew she wasn't going to ask me to do something totally ridiculous and out of my comfort zone. So I was, I was pretty eager to like, oh, let's give this a shot. And it's kind of nice too, because coming up in theater, being a cisgendered man, you're always, you're always going to be put into a cisgendered male role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a few exceptions. If you happen to get cast in and something like Hairspray, where you get to play Edna Turnblad or the queen and once upon a mattress. There's some character like every once in a while, but the chance of getting those roles is so rare. Mm -hmm. And drag was a chance for me to play a character that I would in theater more than likely never be able to never be allowed to play. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, all the characters that I've done over the years, I've only played one woman. And now I don't think that I have a lot of feminine qualities to lean into <laughs> to, to play a woman. Uh, so I, I definitely like my choice was to play an older hardened, like Eastern European woman. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a, that would be a, yeah, a easier transition to make. Yeah. But it would intimidate me a great deal to really try to do it because I, I wouldn't even know I would have to really study. I think what another thing that helped me with it was as a kid, I was naturally pretty effeminate. Yeah. Uh, to the point where one of my professors told me that I would probably never make it in musical theater or in entertainment in general because I was too light, which oh. apparently was code for feminine, um, which, you know, uh, a royal FU uh, professor. Because <laughs> yeah. um, now we yeah. see amazing actors like Billy Porter who are out there just completely flipping everybody's idea of what gender norms are. So, yeah. And I mean, I guess I get it, but to, from the outside, it seems hilarious to me to tell someone that <laughs> like you're too gay for musical theater. Right. 
It's like no no gay man's ever gonna make it in musical theater. All that singing and dancing, that's a straight man's game. Oh, that is hilarious, actually. Uh and so how did you meet this queen? Being a, a little oh not little, but being a younger uh gay boy growing up in Fort Wayne, we had I think three gay bars at the time. One was this leather bar. Not really my scene. Loved, like I went, I had some friends that would hang out there so everyone so I'd go and, but it wasn't quite my scene. There was a dance club, definitely not my scene. Um, and then there was this little, like they always did like little drag shows and things. And I, that's where we would just go and hang out because it was a little bit more chill. It was exciting. Um, and for one of my friend's birthdays, which apparently we had met before this, but the first uh, meeting I remember for one of my friend's birthdays, they wanted to get all gussied up in costume and go to the bar. And naturally, knowing we we're going to a drag show, I was like, well, I'm going to kind of drag this out. And I walked in and apparently I looked like I had just been playing in crayons. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, Delalicious and Paige Turner, two of the drag queens at the bar who were not in the show. Like I walked in and they grabbed me. It was like, oh, no, baby. No, no, baby. They drug me into the dressing room. And they're like, if you're going to do this, you're going to not look a, a mess in this space. So they repainted my face. And I saw photos uh, from that night. And like, I looked marginally better. But they were also, <laughs> they were working with some pretty rough work trying to clean it up. But that's how <laughs> Della and I met when she was like, no, no, baby. <laughs> baby, come here. Let, let mama fix your face. <laughs> And we just kind of we we're thick as thieves after that. Had you, you surely had at least done like some makeup throughout theater and stuff, though. Right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, the, the guy liners, things like that. Yeah. But um, to do a full like gender transformation with the highlighting, contouring and feminizing what I, I my face is is pretty squared. Yeah. Um, but to, to feminize it and to understand that process. Until you've done it and done it for honestly a while, it is not intuitive. No, I can't. Like, I would already know. Like, I can't do. I can't even. I can't draw or anything. Like, <laughs> and I've had to do different makeups many, many times for shows. But if it's anything that's like actual, like makeup, like cosmetics, I just ask somebody to do it for me. Yeah. I don't even attempt it. Like, it, it, it's. I've had so many different women apply eyeliner on me in a dressing room <laughs> and it's and, and i will give it to to the women who have tried to help men feminize but it's like they're all they're trying to work with they're all they know their makeup because they're working with what god gave them yeah and then they're looking at somebody else's face and it's like this is not what i have yeah i'm gonna transform this so it's even then it can be a little bit rough but it's it's a whole different world when you're just trying to augment good features that already exist like I've seen, I've seen some of your characters and, and the makeup you do works really well for those characters, but you're augmenting what you already have instead yeah. of like trying to completely change it. It's, it's the equivalent of, it really is the equivalent of like monster makeup where it's like you, I'm taking, I'm taking your humanity and turning it into something else. Yeah. When I was growing up, my dad is just a hobbyist with, uh, like prosthetics and stuff. So he would oh, just like thanks. make Halloween costumes, but with like latex molds on a plaster sculpt of his face. And like, oh, I love that. And really like, he was really into Rick Baker, 
the uh, the okay. like Hollywood like special effects guy. So I grew up with that, and my older brother Vinny is into that stuff too. I just I knew it's not for me. Like it, I can't <laughs> I can't draw a straight line. You know, like it's, it is a it's a patience thing first, because the first ten to hundred times you're gonna do it, it's gonna look terrible. Yeah. And it's like there's little bits of growth along the way. And then one day you're doing it and it could be that hundredth time and it just kind of snaps and you're like, oh, well, duh. This, and then it's you've got it from there. Yeah. Another thing that really helped me was when I went through uh, school for cosmetology and aesthetics, we had to study the anatomy of the face. And that kind of helped me break down like, oh, I have this. I need it to look like this. This is what, you know, it's. And it, understanding both anatomy of the face and then working with photographers and especially studying the work of Kevin Aquan, who was a photographer turned makeup artist. Um, it's understanding light and shadow. Yeah. And it okay, was it was yeah. such a process. And like I said, I've been doing drag now for, oh, gosh, 15 years, I think. And I would say that my comfort level hit maybe halfway through that. It might have been like six or seven yeah, years yeah. ago that I went, oh, this is what I should be doing. Got it. Yeah, and that makes sense. Within it, like anything, I, I mean, that sounds like a, a pretty normal curve of learning yeah. to get there. So I want to know, did you th did you go to Vegas then? Like after I this did. amateur night, you did you pack up and go? I did. Uh, I borrowed $500 from my sister, took the money from the amateur drag show and the little bit I'd saved up, which was very, it was far too little. <laughs> and I was young. I think I I might have just turned 21 at this time or okay, like around okay. this time. So I was young and very stupid, which is the which is the privilege of youth. Yep. Um, and I was like, I'm just going to go out there and wing it. And I went out there and, and winged it. And I had some incredible bookings and I met some incredible entertainers. Um, I went out there. I had I'd done a little bit of lounge singing like, oh, this piano that's playing in this lobby and we'll just have you do some little crooning uh, with the piano yeah and i when i went out there i did there was a bar out there that had an amateur night and i was like well i've done this once let's do it again and after that amateur night i was got regular bookings there eventually worked my way up to hosting events at at casinos on the strip and working the weirdest one was working uh hosting an, uh, all nude all nude male reviews um that was different <laughs> Yeah, but it was like I, I saw so much growth and realized the earning potential for me as uh, in drag with this wonderfully flamboyant persona far exceeded the earning potential for me as a singer. And then yeah. and I say that knowing that I was almost homeless before I finally was like, uh, you know what? I I jumped the gun on this and I moved back home and was like, I'm going to I'm going to put myself back together and do this smarter yeah how long were you out there i don't even remember at this point <laughs> like it a year so, or less yeah about that it was so yeah. much of it was such a blur because it's a 24 7 city and yeah. i felt compelled as a 21 year old oh yeah to live a 24 7 lifestyle yeah i was we finished our last show we would be driving to grab some breakfast uh the sun's up the whole city looks gold when the sun's just rising get breakfast, sleep for a few hours and then start over again. Yeah, I, shit, I make the joke that moving back to Indy or moving back to Indiana was rehab. 
<laughs> I'm sure, yeah. And that answers what my second question was going to be was how is it delicious? Is that what you say her yeah, name was? Yeah, that's okay. the drag mother. That how she was your drag mother if you left, but it's because you ended up coming back. And I think to anyone who doesn't know, fairly simply, the drag mother, it's your mentor. Yeah. Drag is a, a master apprentice kind of uh, a hobby or occupation, depending on, on your level of it. But it's very few people do not have an actual drag mother. And sometimes that drag mother is just the first person that puts you in drag and kind of taught you how to walk and, okay, hit it. And for for some of us, we're very fortunate. It was somebody who actually continued to mentor us after we started. And we're there to, in Della's case, she was there to remind me to stay humble. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes in very harsh ways, but it worked. Um, I like to think that I'm not a total, I'm not a total, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of a nice word for it. Diva. I was going to say, you can't use diva because the, the entire premise of doing it is being a diva. <laughs> I'm, I'm a diva on stage. Yeah, I know there how you to go. It off. Uh, here, here's a question about the the mentoring. I'm sure the drag mother is probably the person who teaches you how to tuck. Um, some many times, yes. Uh, Not for Della, you. You're a self tucker. You figured out how to. <laughs> yeah, uh, delicious family. We are we are not petite in any way. We are mm -hmm. we are all big girls. Um, and the nice thing about being a big girl is that a good pair of tucking panties, uh, which are just just hatefully, just imagine buying underwear that's two sizes too small. Yeah, it just kind of like it just kind of makes everything do what it needs to. Right. So like I, I always when I see really uh, when I see really trim uh, queens getting started, I'm just like, oh, gosh, the amount of duct tape you're going to use, you're going to hate life. Yeah. I imagine like if you have a thigh gap. And oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's why. Now, there has to be locker room like stories or whatever about like. Of the not tucking well and bad things happening. Oh, I've seen I've seen it in pageants when and in a pageant. You're supposed to be at your best. Mm -hmm. um, but I've seen in, in the middle of pageants, I've seen, you know, somebody wearing uh, a leotard shaped costume and they do a high kick and you're just like, is there some gum stuck? Oh, nope, that's the ball. There's the ball. Uh, there was one indie queen. She's passed now. God rest her soul. Uh, who was so notorious for her balls coming out of her costume <laughs> that when she'd be on stage and she'd just do high kick after high kick and the crowd would just, every kick was, Balls, balls, <laughs> balls, and I just kind of ran with it. Uh. Um, there, I've seen more hellacious untucking uh, or like slip tucked uh, moments, um, and every time I'm just like, you're watching it, and you're just like, am I seeing what? A That's a, yep, mm, mm. oh that, ooh. somebody get her, somebody get her. <laughs> God, well, and there has to be as well, like outside of just the performing, like when you're in full drag and you're hanging out of a place, like, like you gotta have, have to avoid sitting on your balls too. Right. Um, yes and no. Like it all just kind of like, just, I don't know if you've got some enough, enough natural padding, it's all just kind of yeah. sorts itself out. But, so yeah, I've, I've known Queens who are, again, it's like the really trim Queens, the, the our thigh gap girls. Mm. who uh like i've seen them when they like go and sit down like oh hey how are you and they just pop down in a chair and they pop right back up go mm, mm, <laughs> yeah mm. and I'm, we'll sit down a little bit more gently 
so you come back to Fort Wayne, and then do you get active in the scene at that point? Like, you've got some performing. You've been in Vegas for a little bit. You've got Almost some... immediately. Yeah. I just, I was, I came back, and I'm like, oh, I'm a Vegas girl now, all high and mighty. Yep. Um, I, I think I might have mentioned Vegas 30 times in any one conversation. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but I, I, I needed to get back on stage. And luckily, my drag mother, who was was has always been quite the to do in Fort Wayne, was very much like, OK, like, well, oh, there's this show coming up. Well, I'll help you talk to the show director about getting you in there. Do me a favor. Shut up. Stop talking yeah. about Vegas. Yeah. Like you were not a Vegas showgirl. Calm down. But I no, I immediately jumped back into it because I was I was hungry for performing. And uh, I kind of burnt my bridges a little bit with Fort Wayne Theater. So I didn't really for, uh, see a chance for me to get back into Fort Wayne Theater. Because once you start doing drag, a lot of theater people are just like, no, no, bye bye. I do, they pull up their crosses like you're some kind of vampire. I could see that because a lot of theater people are still kind of like kind of uptight people. They are. And I still I, I still am very close to a lot of theater people and and. I, you know, I get my judgmental look when they start comparing uh, clowns to, or when they start comparing uh, uh, drag queens to mimes as far as, you know, they say like mime. Oh, that's the lowest form of of entertainment. And right above that is drag queen. And then uh, I would usually remind them that I'm being paid to do what I love to do. And you're still working community theater. Yeah. And for sure, I never grew up in theater. I never did theater. So I've always had kind of that chip on the shoulder going the opposite direction of them where yeah. where I was like, yeah, you guys, everything, you're all doing stuff written by other people. Come on now. <laughs> like, and I, not, I'm not trying to devalue it at all, but like <laughs> just that same thing because I was not from that and I was from a more disorganized and uh, less structured right. background. I will say the one thing I appreciate about having theater in my background is it has afforded me a discipline um, that is not always uh, shared in the drag world. But yeah. It's, and it's, but it's not just theater. It's, I mean, there's the show choir kids who still want to keep entertaining. You know, you come from a world where you're used to rehearsal schedules, costume fittings. And these are like, you know, like it's the logistics of entertaining have been drilled into you. So it, that's afforded me a little bit of discipline that I appreciate that I see a lot of younger queens struggle with. Yeah. Um, but it's, and I tell them like, I mean, you don't have to do theater to, to understand it. You can take dance classes. There's all kinds of things you can do, but it's, and there are some who are self-taught though. They just pick it up naturally and they just, they have yeah, a natural yeah. understanding of it, but it's always a, it's always kind of a catch. Like, Ooh, what's your background? Okay. Let me tell you something you're going to need to know. Yeah, when I started comedy, I had come from booking bands like punk rock shows. Okay. And there was always because you have a bunch of bands and we weren't doing sound checks or anything because we were running little shitty shows, but <laughs> you still needed everyone to be there before the show started because things oh, yeah. had to be organized. And when I started doing comedy, I carried that same mentality over and especially then when I started doing stuff with the white rabbit, working with Deborah, who's from, you know, like modern dance and everything like very regimented. I realized that comedians call time was not in the vocabulary. That wasn't a thing <laughs> anybody taught that 
because you don't have any equipment or anything. You just show up right before right. a show and whatever. But I like, like people to be there. Yeah. I need 30 minutes beforehand so that I know you're there and can stop thinking about it and move on to the next right. thing. And it's become more common now, but when I started, call time was not a, a term. I had to explain it when I would say it to people. Well, and I think it's really helped in indie too, both in the drag world and the comedy world. Um, and I'm not super, I'm not super, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Intelligent in the comedy world. But, you know, I've, I've had my toe in it in the, at least the indie scene enough to kind of get a feel for it. I feel like the comedy scene in indie over the last 10 years that I've lived here. Yeah. Have, has really kind of congealed to want to push itself forward even more. Oh, yeah. And we have this, as big as our drag scene is, uh, we have a huge drag scene in Indy. We have a huge a local band, local musician community. Yeah. And a huge comedy community. Yeah. And I think that as it grew um, and as competition grows uh, for each individual performer, it forces you to be like, okay, they asked me to do this. If I want them to book me again, I'll yes. just do it. And that helps. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump back into your timeline here. So in Fort Wayne, you're working. I don't know how long you're there, but you don't come straight to Indianapolis from Fort Wayne, do you? Or did you come here and then go somewhere else? Or nope. I went to Fort Wayne just to kind of to pull myself back together, stayed with my parents. Um, I started working like logistics. I'm uh, not logistics. Um, I worked for uh, uh, industrial temp services. Okay. Um, I don't even know what that means. It's it's I, when I was thinking of temp service, I was like, oh, I'll just be in an office and do some light data entry. Yeah. No, they were, they were they would send me to uh, like they would send me to a warehouse. Are you going to do quality control on Jet Puff marshmallows because oh. they're four months behind? Uh, and then I I was like, all right, let me go there. And they say, OK, this is what you do to check it. OK, I go through and check it. I get them caught up in a, like a week or two weeks. And then they uh, they said, oh, are you coming? It's Halloween time. They said, oh, are you coming dressed up for Halloween? Like, uh, sure. <laughs> Why not? Showed up as Lola, instantly fired. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And they, and because it was legal, it still is. Uh, yeah. They called the temp firm and they were like, yeah, we just don't want gays. And so I was like, okay, uh, fuck. Um, they could probably then, say that a little more clear. Now it'd just be like, it doesn't match our culture. Right. Yeah, now <laughs> they probably have more PC terminology to hide behind. Uh, and then they sent me to Cadillac Coffee which I still have clothes that after all these years still smell like coffee from working there. Um, <laughs> and again, because I'm not as young, but I'm still pretty young and still pretty stupid. But again, Halloween rolls around because I was there for at least a year. Okay. Um, and they said Halloween comes around. They go, are you going to dress up for Halloween? Absolutely. Do it again. Show up and drag this time in a headdress. Uh, it was like, I'm going all out. <laughs> high, high boots, headdress. Nothing about my outfit was safe for working the for working in the factory floor. Um, and they ended up uh, somebody had a camcorder in their car and pulled it out. And we did a little music video on the forklift. So that was quite a culture shift. But it was just. <laughs> and then and then I got back into the service industry, which is where I wanted to be waiting tables, worked my way up to a restaurant manager. And then I went, I you know what? Everywhere I go, I keep feeding drag into it. I need to go somewhere where I have more performance opportunities. Yeah. Because Fort Wayne had one bar that I'm still through all of these jobs, still doing shows at some points uh, weekly, but there's so many Queens that sometimes it's monthly. Yeah. And I was like, I need to go to a bigger market. I didn't think I was a big fish in a small pond. I just, I just 
I thought I was a medium fish and a medium pond, but I wanted a pond that had more, yeah, more places. So I moved to Indy. And luckily, the scene here, people, Queens would uh, warn me like, "Ooh, girl, you're trying the indie scene. Careful, they're cutthroat." But I felt, I felt really welcomed, mainly because I had the teachings of Della, like, "Don't make waves. Don't make enemies when you don't have to." Uh, you know, don't don't instantly get pissed off every time somebody uh, somebody doesn't like what you do, and that helped. But yeah, moved to Indy, and I've been here now for. What, 12 years i think 2009 i moved here in 2009 okay yeah and you pretty much like oh i'm not sure how long it took but you solidified a status in the drag scene here oh yeah i started doing every open stage there was which just like in comedy getting started there's open mics to help kind of cut your teeth yeah. and figure out what people like what they don't same with drag um there weren't a lot of open stages but if, if i get an open stage cool sometimes it'd be a tip spot where they'd book you in a show. You're not getting paid, but you can keep your tips. Okay. Um, but it was like, I would I would do all those I could. And it finally, like, and it was like, okay, you know, somebody would call out and be like, you know what, you're here a lot. The audience loves you. Why don't we actually book you for a real show? And it was a slow process that probably took me, I'd say probably three or four years of just like just doing the grunt work of drag. And then we were like, you know what? No, you're not terrible. It also really helped when I started working with Indie Pride. Because okay, working yeah. through Indie Pride was kind of nice because while I was more on the production side of things with Indie Pride, the connections of, oh, they're with Indie Pride kind of helped a little bit. I want to ask about, like because you mentioned the keeping the tips, and the first time I watched a drag show, I could not believe how much money was being handed out. Oh, yeah. And at first, as a performer, I got like really bitter where I'm like, man, that's so much more money than I'll I ever get when I perform. But you forget about the investment into oh, what's yeah. going on. Like, so in professional wrestling, and I might be getting the terms wrong here a little bit, but they always talk about like on the regional circuit, like the local guys who don't even have their kit yet, meaning they haven't really put in the money for good boots yeah. and costuming and stuff that they're, they're going off of like off the rack stuff. And they're like, they have, they haven't made, turned that corner yet where they've invested that. And it might even be a small amount. It might be like $300 that just when you're not making money for doing what you're doing, spending $300 when it's tough. So if you're doing, you just make an act. And so you, your costume and your track and your performance here how much would you say is like an average financial investment into this it it really kind of varies but if you take like just one number if i'm doing just a let's say i'm doing i'm, I'm just hosting a show that's real generic yeah i don't really have to have any specific look you're not the feature you're there to introduce the features yeah those outfits a lot cheaper but to go on stage where you're wanting to make sure that you're catching the audience's eye because every, every show is a competition. Yep. If, if you're not getting, if somebody else is getting the tips, that's money that you're not going to get. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, how do I make sure I catch their eye? Um, you know, it's, it's, you have to be entertaining. You have to know what you're doing, but if you're in a show where you're all pretty matched skill wise, where's your edge? Um, and, before I got, before I was like, well, I'll sing live. I got a little lazy when I did that, but I'm looking at some of my outfits now. I'd say like, I've got a few dresses hanging here that are just the outfit alone is a couple hundred. Yeah. 
And some of them, like you talk about when when I first started, you know, we'd hit up Deb or Ross Dress for Less. Yeah. Right. Ross has the nickname Ross Cross Dress for Less. <laughs> um, and, you know, you pick up like, oh, these are cheap and whatever. And then you start buying that stuff and then you jazz it up on your own. Like you add the rhinestones, stuff like that. Do you sew? I do. I do. Yeah. It is not. It is uh, more and more not common in the drag community. Now within a drag community, it's like every queen, at least they know if they don't. sew, at least they know somebody who sews. Yeah. So that helps. Yeah. But I still will buy stuff that is fully formed. Uh-huh. And then like, you know, like I might I might be at Walmart and see some weird shirt. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's a drag outfit. And but then I take him like, OK, I'm going to cut it up this way. I'm going to fix it with this. We're going to next thing you know, all of a sudden I've turned this this t-shirt this you know this weird t-shirt into a gown of some sort right but it's still i mean all those little ingredients you put into it cost money and then you add hair hair is anywhere from 50 to 200 dollars yeah on a conservative estimate wigs are expensive you're getting pageant hair some of those like huge monstrosity pieces yeah i know queens who have paid upwards of almost a grand for it i'm sure yeah um and it's that's why i kind of i stayed away from the pageant world just because it's to do a pageant, you might, if you're doing one of the best pageants around, you might get some kind of like $10,000 prize. You've spent 20 on your package somehow, probably mm-hmm. with sponsors, but you get $10,000. If you're doing a bar title, you'll get like three guaranteed bookings and a $500, and $500 or $250, right. even though you've put at least a grand into that bar title. So it's like, that's why I kind of stayed away from the pageant route. Um, but I... That would that's a that's a privilege that comes with experience. The more the longer you've been around, the fewer you have to do to stay relevant. But yeah. In drag, I can't imagine. I mean, I'm, I know there's delusional people, of course, especially in the oh. performance arts. But like no one's really getting into drag thinking they're going to be famous. Right. Because until RuPaul, that wasn't True. a thing. Right. I'm yeah, I'm a firm believer that even even now in current times, I don't think you can be famous as a drag queen. I think you can be infamous. And we're sure. starting to see that flip over. You know, Trixie Mattel is topping uh charts with bluegrass music. Weird. Um, yeah. Uh, but we're starting to see some flip over, but uh it's one of those that you're never gonna be famous. I've known many queens who have made stable careers out of it. Right. No, they're not getting rich. Yeah. Um, you have queens like Chelsea Pearl and Denise Russell, who tour the country. Uh, they're both uh, um, Chelsea. Chelsea Pearl is a famous pageant queen uh, who has the most luxurious and outrageous costumes. I mean, she can go on stage wearing at least three flocks worth of birds into an outfit <laughs> that would cost thousands of dollars. But she and her partner, Marcus, would make them so. You know, they saved some money there, but she was famous for her costumes. Uh, Denise Russell became famous for singing live. Yeah. Uh, she would do uh, her one she was most known for was she would do. Uh, um, uh, oh, my gosh. Why don't my brain just draw blank? Big wheel. Keep on turning. Oh, Tina Turner. Mary. Yeah. Yeah. But she'd sing it live. And then she'd so she'd start out just singing as a character. And she's like, and now is Tina. And she kind of give a little Tina inflection. And then she go, now is Catherine Hepburn. Oh. And it was just it was weird and bizarre, but still wonderful. But they built careers where they would tour the country. But 
if you weren't in the at least that that queer entertainment spectrum, you had no idea who they were. And RuPaul's Drag Race did change that and kind of change people's motives for drag. We have people oh, who sure. are starting drag for the, of the last decade who started drag because they saw RuPaul's Drag Race, not because yeah. of a show they saw in a bar, because they of RuPaul's Drag Race. And they're like, oh, I can do that. Um, and some of them are now just focusing on Instagram. Some of them are just yep. focusing on shows. Some of them are just literally just painting their mug just to hang out. And it's so it's it's gotten kind of weird, but also kind of, kind of wonderful. There's a bit more of a mainstream about it. Is that has that show been on that long? Has it been about a decade now? Yeah, they're that getting makes sense. I, but I think they're yeah. about to start filming their 14th season. That's wild. Yeah, that's I, re I remember watching the first season. And in my mind, it wasn't that long ago. And now I look at pictures of Queens from that first season. And I'm like, how, how did she get so old? I'm like, oh, that's right. It was 14 years ago. Yeah. Making a living doing drag, is that touring? Or can you live in like Vegas and like just have a busy enough schedule to do it? I would say if you're in Vegas, maybe New York, LA, like a Mecca kind of yeah. a city. Uh, an entertainment mecca kind of a city you could you could make a living with it uh, and just staying in one spot especially if you are on cast somewhere there are a lot of bars where their cast is actually paid a salary and it's okay. you're, you're an employee yeah but then here in the midwest it is probably it's a lot more about traveling because you can only see the same audience so much before they're going to get bored with you right is chicago does it have a big scene Chicago does have a big scene and they're a really close knit scene too. It's kind of, it's amazing. Most cities you go to, there's a lot of cattiness, competition breeds, a lot of bad attitudes. Yeah. In Chicago, uh, a queen will tell you every reason why you're horrible and then will cut the next person who tries to tell you the same thing. <laughs> like, no, no, you don't mess with her. It's, it's such a weird, but wonderful scene. But I do know a lot of queens up there. Most of them do have a side job, mm -hmm. but it's, they talk about, well, you know, I do drag on the side, but then you look at their income and their time and it's like, okay, which one's really the side job? I think for sanity's sake, we say it's drag this is the side job, but yeah, that's really what they're putting more effort into. But I living in Indy is really awesome because you have the Chicago market, Fort Wayne, uh, Lima, Ohio, Dayton, Cincinnati, uh, Louisville, Lexington, um, you know, you can just spin the wheel around and there's a city you can go to and do shows. <coughs> Even bars within Indiana. Uh, there's one now, there's a drag show I saw in Martinsville. In Martinsville. Yeah, in Martinsville. Um, and from what I hear, they're having a blast. Um, they're, I mean, just every small town, like it's, that's another benefit of drag race. Right. Are they? Do they have these big gay audiences? Probably not. And sometimes it is, uh, let's just go see the freaks. And I'm like, you know what? You can call me a freak, but you got to pay for it. <laughs> um, well, that's what I, I'm not trying to be shitty and I'm not trying to bait you into talking shit. No, but, not at all. But there is that like the straight white woman. Oh, yeah. Adopting the culture. Oh, and it's, I mean. It's, the person that has to announce, I'm an ally. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, you're not. Um, I have the same problem with people who fly the ally flag. I right. actually hate, I hate that. It's that when you fly the ally flag and whether you're doing it, the physical flag or just doing it verbally, you're saying, look at me, look at me, look at how good I am. Rather than doing the, the allyship of going, look at this group, look at this cause. 
you should be supporting this. Um, and even within the community, there's bad people. Like it's sure as a as a cisgendered gay man, I need it's it's I have a responsibility for allyship to the trans community, to I'm um, to all the the subgroups. Or we all have to, we should be allies with each other. Doesn't always work that way, but it'd be nice if it did. Yeah, you but told that, me a story once that has really stuck with me, and I've brought it up to a lot of people. I think I might have talked about it on here when I interviewed Boy Barella. But you told me a story about hosting karaoke and referring to a a couple like an older two men, like an older couple as queer and them taking offense to that. Oh, yeah, because it, to them, the their generation, whatever, they're like, there's nothing queer about us. We are no. we're a married couple living our life. And it's and queer is a very unique term right now. Um, because there are people who specifically identify as queer right. to the point where Q is now in the whole alphabet. Yeah. Um, but it's queer. Uh, I, I kind of came in, I'm in that weird middle generation where it's like generation before bad word generation after right. that's who I am. And it was, it's kind of a, a reowning uh, situation with the word, but I always kind of looked at it as the origin of the word meaning left of center yeah um something that is something that popular culture would say is not quote-unquote normal Mm -hmm. but is just fine um and so i i liked the word and uh but again there's there's that sensitivity that you know there's it's that kind of a privilege of youth thing like i like something my group likes something doesn't necessarily mean that everybody does and uh, they, the couple was of the generation, I would say, leading up to Stonewall. Yeah. Which, I mean, queer was a, queer was a, a term they would use when arresting you for being gay. Like on your paperwork, like what'd you arrest them for? Being queer. Yeah. Um, and some of it depends on intent with the word. Like, I don't look at somebody and go, oh my God, what a queer. That would be yeah. bad. But when I look at somebody yeah. and go, oh my gosh. They're so like it's like queer fabulousness, it's, which when I look at it, I'm like, oh, it's it's different and wonderful, which is kind of I think how younger people like the word. It's right. different and wonderful. It must be queer. Yeah. And it, it like I don't use it very often because I no. feel like it feels weird coming out of my mouth, but it's because of the baggage that I carry with it because of where I'm from. Yeah. Anyway, so it, it's an odd thing because. I can refer to a place as being like, if I'm describing to somebody, I'll be like, yeah, it's like a a very like queer atmosphere. And even when I say it, then I'm like, I hope they get what I'm saying here because it sounds weird to me hearing myself use it. And queer is the people who identify as queer aren't necessarily identifying as gay. Mm -hmm. Um, It's they're just, they just like to live by the beat of their own drum, by the seat of their own pants. Um, Like I, when we've referred to a lot of bars as gay bars, mm-hmm. even that's changing because, well, gay bars were predominantly occupied by gay people. Right. Like gay bars were for the gay men. Lesbian bars were first for lesbians. And then, uh, and so we saw, we see an intent for bars to be like, well, no, 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 we want gay men and lesbians together. We want trans people to feel welcome. We want, um, you know, the, uh, now we're, there's a big push to make sure we are recognizing bisexuals exist. We need to not be jerks to them. <laughs> they they kind of get the step the step 
child treatment a lot and they shouldn't but but you know we see these bars wanting to pull in more and more and i'm like well what do we call it then because if we call it a gay bar we're excluding all of these other groups and um so i call it a queer space Uh, I, i that's and that may not be what a lot of people like to hear but that's it's what works in my head best for it sure um like but i look at places like the white rabbit the white yeah. rabbit for me is an extremely queer space. Right. Um, not because people in there are, and of the, the, by the way, if you want a shortcut for the alphabet, because the full alphabet is LGBTQQIP2SAA. Oh, um, the sh- shorter version for me is SOGI, S-O-G-I, sexual orientation, gender, and identity. Covers uh, everything. Okay. But um, it's not just like SOGI people are in white rabbit. Yeah. It's it's that place where everybody can go into and you can be yourself, whatever yourself is, you can be yourself and you're fine and you're safe. Yeah. And so I, I like spaces like that, but we, you know, it's, I think that some people are still desensitizing themselves to the hate that used to be put behind the word. Yeah. But I, I say the word is, I say the word is safe as long as you understand how you're using it. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah, I, would agree with that. That sounds right. And I think that kind of should be the same for any word as well. Like that's kind yeah. of how it, it's intent and your, your comfortability with it. I, it's funny. Like I know a lot of comics who like black guys who w- will not say the N word on stage because they're like, people don't like it from me. Mm-hmm. Like, it, and they're like, there's something about the way it comes out of me hits people wrong. And so <laughs> I just avoid it. I had, uh, there was a, a trans woman of color used to host a lot of shows and she would drop the N word all the time. And one day she just stopped and she, it was like two or three shows. It never once came out of her mouth and it was enough. Like she used it enough that we noticed. Yeah. And I, one day I asked her, I was like, you don't use that word anymore. Like you don't, you don't owe me an explanation, but I'm kind of curious why, why the change she goes, I don't mind telling you. Uh, people were listening to it and felt like I was giving permission for any for uh, any little queer boy to use it. And I'm not OK with that. And I was like, oh, that makes yeah. sense. Oh, yeah. And it's crazy how people will adopt that. Uh, you know, Dwight Simmons, he has oh, yeah. a, a bit that he uses and he doesn't really say it much. Anybody has no. a bit in his act where he says it and he has a bunch of stories about white people coming up to him afterwards and being like, Oh, I love that inward bit that you do. And it's like, what the fuck dude? Like that's weird. And I think it's, I think they like that confidence that they just got and they're going to go try it. (laughs) It's like, Oh, I'm let me go test the waters. Is it okay for me now? No, no, sit down. So weird. And I've heard some of those I've heard, I've seen Dwight many times. And I've seen, well, I've heard the jokes that you're talking about, and I I like how he uses it because he uses it as an as a punctuation. Yeah, is this we're making a point here? Yep. Um, which I, it's kind of like when I see any entertainer, whether they're stand up or whatever, who are always who are always dropping the f bomb. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's such a fun word to use, and you are just ruining it. Yeah, and. One of the things when you talk about being a performer is I admittedly have a lot of the same knee jerk reactions uh, when I like, and and I'll admit it. Like when I first heard black lives matter, 
my thought was, oh, that's going to be a divisive slogan. It seems like it could be something like all lives matter. I literally had that thought. Yeah. And then I didn't say it out loud to anybody. And like within a few moments or however long it took me to like be exposed a little bit more, I'm like, oh, now I do see why that would be way. That's not the way to go and why it is what it is. I'll have those thoughts. And that's, you know, like whatever I can admit to it. And also when people start bringing up the issue of pronouns, Oh yeah. I had some of the same, like where I, I don't want to have to change any of the way I've done anything. (laughs) So like you, my immediate reaction is to be disregard it and be defiant about it. And then I have to think, well, I'm a performer. I'm a writer. I'm a comedian. I know the power of the choice of words. It's huge. So I can't act like it doesn't matter how I gender somebody when I'm talking. Because I am very well aware of the power of our choice of language. I I struggled with a lot of these things. You know, it's one of those things, too. Like, the first time, first time somebody tells you something that is contradictory to everything you know, and you're like, and th- there's a processing time. Yeah. First time, I was at a conference. I was at an uh, Interpride, which is an international organization of pride organizers. Pride organizers from all over the world getting together. It was the first time I ever heard the term white privilege Mm -hmm. and my dander could not have gone up more. (laughs) I mean, I I have a mohawk and I swear it just stood up slowly. (laughs) And I was like, you, my life is not all roses. You asshole. And I was, and I was, Oh, I like, I, I didn't, I didn't blurt things out loud. Like my thoughts, because again, I'm in a a room of a very, socially aware people and I was not about to make myself a pariah but afterwards like I would pull other people of my group aside and be like okay I need you to explain this to me because that I am so bothered by that phrase and the conference came and went and I never really got resolution on it and I think I was talking to I was talking to a queen here in Indy I think and I was just like I I'm still trying to wrap my head around this and they said okay your life has been rough. It's like, yeah, yeah. Like I've, I've been beaten by police before and left on the side of the road. I, you know, I've, I've experienced horrendous things. I've been attacked in, in public bathrooms and, and I'm just like, no, like I no. And they said, now all that stuff happened to you being white. Yep. How do you think it would have been all of those things? Had you not been white? Ah. Hmm. Well, that probably would have sucked a little bit worse or a lot. I was like, oh, okay. And light bulbs go off and I still processed it for a while, but then I was like, okay, like I, I have, I have, I've seen enough people of color and their struggles, not just because of life, but specifically because of the color of their skin added to life. Like it was, I was it helped my perspective. And then with pronouns, it was the, they, them, there, the plural pronouns. Yeah. Yeah. That one stuck in my craw as a lover of, of English and of grammar. I could not wrap my head around that, but it's one person. And the weird thing, (laughs) what messed me up more wasn't the realization of, oh, that's what I get it now. It was the fact that it was my mother that made me realize it. And my mother, 
has love for anybody she comes across. A very kind-hearted person. I will not go so far to say that she is the most aware socially. She's a white suburban woman. Right. Her exposure to things is limited, especially because she's pretty antisocial. And she looked at me and she goes, but they don't identify as one gender. They identify as multiple. Yeah. So plural gender. Maybe that's where the plural pronoun comes from is the plural gender identity. I was like, ah, oh, that actually makes some sense. Okay. Like I'm like, I wasn't a hundred yet, but yeah. I was like on my way there. It was like, it, it opened the door for me to go, okay, that's fine. But it's a process and people need to, I feel like people get mad because they feel like the world is telling them change now. And sometimes the world is, but the reality is start the change now, but it's allow yourself that process and the patience to really analyze it and go, why? Because usually if you ask why, you'll get an answer that makes you slowly go, okay, that's not so bad. And hopefully you have friends that you can talk openly with. Absolutely. Where you can say those things that you don't want to say on the internet, where but you can like say like here this is the problem I'm having because when I hear it I think this and then they can be like no dumb fuck it's <laughs> because it works for me with the 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 pronouns I realized like when you try to change I was talking to him to talking to them you're like oh that doesn't make sense because that sounds like more than one person right but then if you think about when you're like I was talking to my friend Janice and they told me this and this you're like oh we say that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, nobody, nobody uh, is ever grammatically perfect, especially with pronouns. So it's like, you're going to have to actively think about it for a while. And then after a while, you just start thinking about it less and less. And I'm to the point now where I've actually tried to remove gendered pronouns altogether just because it makes life easier. Like, Hey folks. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, it's when you are in certain cultures, it's like that's an easy thing to do and do it but when you like just live in the suburbs and most people operate on the gender they were assigned and like whatever then it's like every once in a while you might meet somebody who you offend by not gendering them properly but most of your life you're probably never going to have to adopt these things and you're going to although but it is becoming so much more common like working in schools like i have like i mean it's much more common now for like kids in like third grade to say that they want to be referred to as a different pronoun. And, you know, so it is becoming more pervasive in our culture for sure. And that shift will happen. It will take some time and, you know, but. I think a lot of it for kids, it's experimentation. Oh yeah. Because I, I, until I was like in, into my twenties, I, from, from birth into my twenties, there's a whole, like, who am I? Like, and even after that, we still ask, but you know, I feel like once I got like into my twenties, I started to have a better idea. But as a child, no, we're going to try a little bit of everything. Yeah, I was straight for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I thought I was. But, <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, well, you but thought it, you were, yeah. You thought yeah, everybody and I, was. And I tried a few things, and I was like, well, that's awkward. <laughs> that supposed to be? That's, that's not right. Um, but it's, yeah, giving ourselves permission to, to, be, to just think about it. Most of the time, we're fine. But you're right. A lot of us... It, perfect example is in our Facebook friends circles that we yeah. build. It's we do the same thing in real life. We build very homogenous circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you're living in a city community, especially in like 
nightlife kind of community, it, that circle is going to be a lot more diverse. Right. But working like a lot of your suburban nine to fives, your uh, the occurrences where you're going to be faced with these things is not great. Right. And when it happens, if you offend somebody, the biggest trick is to go, oh, I'm I'm so sorry. Uh, and just just correct from there. And chances are you may never even run into that person again. You just said, you know, I'm sorry. They might still be offended, but you've done what you need to do. You apologized, yeah. hopefully sincerely. And then you move on and then it's done. And if you yeah. see them again, chances are because you had that awkward encounter, you're going to look at them and go, I remember. Yeah. Because I don't want that awkward occurrence again. And then the next, and then if it happens to be some of that becomes a bigger focus in your life, at that point, it's, it's, it's moot. But I also agree that having friends that you can openly talk to is important. I loathe the idea of being a dictionary for strangers. Yeah. I, I, there's nothing I hate more than a stranger coming up to me. Like, so which one of you is the man? Sweetie, we're gay. We're both men. Yeah. I don't know what's so hard about that. Um, <laughs> but I, I hate, but for, it's so, it's such a different thing for friends. Yeah. Because when, because I, and I, it's weird too, because I've turned the tables a lot of times and talked to friends and I'm like, but wait, so, so in a straight relationship, you do what? <laughs> and they're, because I'm, I don't know. I have no clue what it is to be uh, a straight person in this world. Um, just like I have no idea what it is to be trans. And I've, I will never go up to like a trans person that I, I don't quite know and be like, "Hey, so about being trans?" Like, no, no, no. It's an automatic no. But if it's somebody I have a friendship with, and you know, it's it also like a little bit of time and you know, a little research, you can figure out some things are just inappropriate. Right. Period. Like. I don't care how much, how well I know somebody. I'm not going to go. So tell me about your sex life. Right. Tell me how, can you demonstrate on this doll how this works? <laughs> Whether you're talking to a trans person or a sister and a person, a gay person, a yeah. straight person, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. That's a little awkward. Yeah. Uh, I want you to tell me a little bit. You're talking about working with Indie Pride. And I know that, so... Because, you know, we talked about, like, getting in the drag community, but I know that you also have done a lot of other work with Indie Pride, uh, with an establishment that you uh, help run, and also, like, you've branched out to other performing, doing improv and different things. So give me, give me like, a, an idea of the active uh, lifestyle the that you live. Yeah. So the evolution of Lola moving to Indie was a lot of fun. <clears throat> it was just drag show at night, day job and during the day, um, indie pride meetings once a week in the afternoon. Um, and then when it came time for the festival, I was going to host the stage. Um, and then I became the entertainment director, which was a lot. That's a 40 hour <laughs> a week volunteer position. Oh, wow. Yeah. That goes year round. And I, I probably made it more than what it was originally set out to be because I, I am a bit of a workaholic and I'm like, no, it's going to be great. Mm. You're going to see it. It's going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was so I but with that, I got to work with entertainers across every genre because a pride stage should represent the community that it's that it's entertaining. Yeah. So it was like I need to make sure I have I, I could not tell you. I am so uh, hip hop dumb. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was just, 
like I grew up like loving LL Cool J and and um, Missy Elliott, Queen Latifah. That is not the hip hop world today. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, so, but I still need my stage to represent the the people in our community who that that resonates with them. Mm-hmm. And so it was constantly like working with these acts, and and it was like, okay, oh, I'm figuring stuff out. I'm still I'm still that really awkward suburban mom that's trying to be hip with the kids, but I'm trying to figure it out. And then I'm working with uh, I need hosts for stage, and I don't want just drag queens hosting because the queer the queer world the gay the soji world is not made up of just drag queens yeah so you know there are there are gay and trans uh comedians who make great hosts and so i'm i'm going out and figuring that world out um working uh, improvisers always make great hosts yeah prevents because they can if something's going wrong they need to stall for time you look over to the stage and that person's over there pulling their hands apart saying we need more time like okay they can fake something well so i had to meet improvisers and and hip-hop artists and dancers and all these people that were doing stuff that i did not do and it really made me look at what i was doing in drag because i was just doing the lip sync performances okay there's nothing wrong with but i was looking at what i was doing and i was instantly bored with myself yeah not because what i was doing was bad because i I was getting bookings and I had great rapport with audiences, but I just, I realized that there's so much more that I could be doing. I still don't do hip hop. Cause I, I would just be, I, I would have, <laughs> I, I wouldn't offend people because of subject matter. I would just offend people with bad quality. Right. Um, but I was like, I want to, I want to be a better host. I met improvisers. They're all great hosts. I'm going to take an improv class. I took them in college, but, a college theater improv class and a, a community improv class are two very different classes. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I started with indie prov. I took classes with them because I'd pulled them in for come, some events. So I was like, Oh, I, I like what they do. I'm going to try it out. And then, so I was doing improv and then I was doing around the same time. I started doing uh, a few things here and there with a the white rabbit really sporadically. And I was like, ooh, I feel like just the lip sync doesn't work there. Like, I'll do it sometimes, but that it needs something different. So I was like, oh, you know what? I can sing. Why not do that? Yeah. And then, so as I'm doing improv, and I'm singing live over here, and I want to start incorporating that into just my regular drag self at the other bars. And it was too different. Yeah, okay. Uh, so I really kind of pulled away from a lot of the drag bars, not for any lack of love for them, just just because it was not it was not where i could do the things that i wanted to play with yeah so i started doing even more with the white rabbit and then i finished my classes with indie prov and there was a group of uh both improvisers and drag queens who were like no this this is there's something here so we started pink slip which is the midwest first yeah. ever and i think still only all drag queen improv comedy troupe um and it was really, it's been a really fun exploration of exactly what all can I do. I mean, it was, uh, it was at the White Rabbit, first time I ever did stand up. Yeah. And they gave me, uh, I was uh, Bill Skaggs, who's the Pink Slip promoter. And he was, he helped me put together the Drag Queens of Comedy. And he was like, hey, got a three minute set. I was like, got it. And I rehearsed a three minute set, went on for 12 minutes. <laughs> The light in the back looked like a strobe light at the end. Like, get <laughs> off the stage. 
but it was kind of nice because hosting drag shows, I can ramble on on a topic forever. Yeah. And luckily, there was a lot of things happening in the world, still are. There was a lot of stuff to talk about, so I just kept going on. I've learned to control it a bit since, but not much. Yeah. <laughs> it's been fun. So at this point, like as we reemerge into the world now, not fully from COVID, like there's definitely still restrictions. I saw that karaoke just got the kibosh put on it. I did, but now a different bar is doing it tonight. Really? Ha. Yeah, I well I'm not offended. I'm just like, what? That is one of the frustrating <laughs> things about uh the shutdown is you, you know, people died, so I don't want to make like too big of a deal out of right, my right. my inconveniences, but when you were doing things the way that they were supposed to be done and also when you were out there because you're you couldn't live without performing basically because it's how you make your money or you run a venue or whatever it is and that's how you stay open when everybody else reopens there's no reward for having been there the whole time nope all there is is people tired of watching you so now they can go other places and (laughs) that is rough and but also when you're following the rules and making that less money for doing so and then you see other establishments doing things however they want and reaping benefit for it. That is really hard to swallow. The biggest, uh, the biggest irk for me was, but long before COVID, actually in 2017, I started, I started my own podcast on the Down Lola, mm-hmm. which uh, it's just to explore the queer world. Yeah, uh, it's to explore the people, places, and events that create this really colorful community. Um, Some very serious topics, some more light and fun and airy. Um, But it was was something I loved doing. And I loved talking to people and using my Lola persona to to engage and educate, but in a fun and flavorful way. And so COVID hit, and I was like, oh, man, I got this on lock. Yeah. Like my studio is, I am, I am quarantined within it and I'm fine. I'm not in a, like, I don't have to go to some office setting where I'm not allowed to go to. So I was cranking out online content like crazy at first. Yep. And I was helping like Pink Slip produce stuff and Circle City Improv produce stuff online, having a blast with it. And then I blinked and it's like, once it's about half, when we were about halfway through the worst of it, all of a sudden, every drag queen out there, had had a formula that was eerily similar to mine and oh like, yeah let's today we're going to talk with Susie. yep how are you guys this is Susie summers and we're gonna and i was like yeah. no no that's mine get yeah. your <laughs> yep i but, can't imagine how many podcasts were started oh. during quarantine <laughs> uh so i had i i took some of i took some money that i had saved up and upgraded some of my equipment and so I was talking to this rep from from Rode, the producers of microphones and stuff. Yeah. And uh, it was lovely because he had that thick Australian accent, which is always fun to listen to. And I said, so how how's business been for you guys? And I won't I won't insult him by trying to do the accent, but he yeah. just said, oh, we're selling out of stuff like crazy. Oh, I'm sure. The microphones you bought are the last are like two of the last four we have on the shelves. Yeah. We've sold, And I was like, oh. Okay. And so it's, yeah, podcasts went up like crazy. Web series went up like crazy. Yep. Um, weird, crazy Zoom shows and viewing parties. Yep. 
Um, but it was the one thing I will give to the people who were there from the beginning, trying to still crank stuff out is that the, the adage necessity breeds in, uh, invention yep. was so true. And so the nice thing is those of us who were there from the beginning went through so many learning curves through the process that now we're able to produce stuff we couldn't produce before. And the people trying to do it now still have that learning curve to go. So at least we theoretically, we have some quality on our side to help us still yeah. reign supreme. Theoretically. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So at this point, uh, I, you've plugged some things and I want to try to hit all of them. Okay. If somebody were in Indianapolis and wanted to see Lollapalooza, you're frequently at least like monthly at the white rabbit cabaret. Yep. Uh, yeah. For, uh, like Vava Vava, um, uh, variety show, um, uh, July, I've got, um, uh, Ballyhoo I'll be hosting. Oh, there's nice. always, yeah. Um, I don't know when this is released, but I'm super stoked for Wowie Zowie on Saturday. Yeah, this will come out the day after. So <laughs> I was really was excited great. during yeah. Wowie Zowie yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So at the White Rabbit Cabaret, quite a bit. Pink Slip is doing stuff at, I, I'm not familiar with the place, but I keep seeing that at the Greg's Our Place. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, Greg's, uh, it's, it was originally called Our Place. Okay. Not Our Place, but Our Place. Yeah. Um, and then when the owner, the one of the original owners, Gregory Powers, passed, uh, they renamed it for Greg uh, okay. in, in his honor. So now, it, then it was just Greg's, and now people are like, "Well, we want everything." So now it's Greg's our place, which is, <laughs> is a lot, but it's still it's a fun place. It's pretty, primarily now like a dance drag venue, and uh, on the first Sunday of every month, Pink Slip uses their stage, and we do a live improv show there. Cool. And then at Ollie's, you're doing oh, stuff. Yeah. Hosting karaoke when that's ever allowed back to, uh, to happen again, for us at least, because um, rules aren't universal, apparently. Right, right. Um, but that and we have all kinds of like random events for the summer. We're doing an ice cream social three times this summer with Pink Slip. Oh, nice. That's cool. I like Ollie's and I was somebody who I... I had some bad experiences at gay bars when I was like in my early twenties. Oh yeah. And which I went in with a terrible disposition and then was proven right. Like, uh. unfortunately. And like, you know, there's, there's a difference between like a scuzzy place where you think that your dick's going to get grabbed in a bathroom. Right. Or like, a cool place <laughs> to hang out. And I didn't know the difference between those places. And I didn't know there was a difference between those places for a long time, but I really like Ollie's. Ollie's is kind of nice because it's not, I would say it's definitely very much not a traditional gay or queer space in that it's, it's always been a meeting place between communities. Yeah, for um, sure. I would say, as many gay people as we have come through our doors, we have just as many straight. Yeah. Um, the and between between sexual orientation, gender, race, religion, political affiliation, just about everybody comes into Ollie's. And the only rule is that Ollie's is neutral territory. Yeah. When and, and it's you know, the number of times I've had to put the kibosh on groups when I have these conservative Republican gay men, I have starting an argument with a very liberal democratic straight couple i like i don't know where i am right now but we're not gonna do this here we're gonna have fun we're gonna have cocktails we're gonna have food we're gonna have a good time enjoy each other's company 
and leave that stuff outside. It'll meet you when you're ready to go. Yeah, what I love about I used to go in to have breakfast. I would drop my kid off at school and then I would go over and get breakfast. And the breakfast at Ollie's would be like uh, like some nurses that are getting ready to go in for their shift. Oh, yeah. And then a drag queen who has not been to sleep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then, like the wigs half off. <laughs> like, And I love it. I absolutely there, love it. There's a drunk sitting across the bar yeah. who is just completely plastered stuff from the night before, just waiting for 7 a.m. to where he can get a cocktail again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then there's Definitely the good for the people watching. There's the podcast on the down Lola. You said you haven't yep. done an episode in a minute, but you get back on the horse. Yep. Uh, we, I just went through with some friends and we got the studio back in order so we can start recording again. We're going to start cranking out episodes here, breaking down. Uh, we're going to fo- really put a focus on people like people's stories and their, uh, their uh, experiences so that we can get a more, you know, a more personal touch to what it is to be LGBTQ. Awesome. Well, I think we can wrap it up. Uh, Lola, thank you so much for sitting down and I will see you soon. Thank you. It's been a magical experience. (laughs) Awesome.